Hi, I'm John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors. I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the NAFI More Right Rudder Podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. And today, I'd like to start out by saying the sponsor of this episode is Pilot Pipeline. Now, if you haven't heard about Pilot Pipeline, they are a great website that'll help you sort of plan out your aviation career. It'll, uh, it'll let you know what do you want to do, tell you how long to do it, and uh, eventually help you achieve your dreams. They also have a great newsletter. So if you're interested in learning more about aviation and enhancing your career, go to Pilot Pipeline and uh, find out more. Now, today, my guest is John Damish. Now, John is the CEO of Iris Automation. He's a NAFI member, of course. He's been flying before he learned how to drive. He's a commercial pilot and flight instructor, and he currently now spends the majority of his efforts um, in his uh, company, Iris Aviation. Now, at the same time, he also represents NAFI on aviation rulemaking committees, um, specifically regarding drones. And uh, the last committee he was a part of was uh, discussing beyond line of sight for drone operators. John, that's a, a pretty uh, great resume. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, John. It's great to be here. I love uh, being able to contribute to NAFI and help our membership. Yeah, absolutely. And we appreciate it. Now, um, certainly I mentioned a few different things and and I, it's it's a lot of stuff that uh, is really interesting. Can you sort of fill me in on a little bit of uh, things about you and, and what you've been doing? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I've had a bit of a meandering path through aviation. Um, always fascinated with airplanes, you know, like most of us on this podcast or listening on this podcast. You know, a lot of us were probably the annoying five-year-old in the airport pointing out every airplane and saying, you know, what model they are and how many passengers they carry and all that good stuff. So that was me. And uh, that kind of drove uh, an interest, and like most of us, um, in science and math. And, you know, obviously engineering was the only only way I could go through college. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Um, but I thought I wanted to be an airline pilot. And so, I, you know, got all the ratings, started teaching people and building the hours and then a few different things happened at the same time. I, my, my wife, um, then, you know, pre-girlfriend, and I started to get serious. And, uh, and I, I recognized like, okay, so I've got this decision point in my life. Do I, do I go down the cockpit path and, you know, be gone a lot? Uh, or I had this other opportunity to join this, this uh, location-based entertainment company that was building flight sims for entertainment purposes. I needed an engineer who understood aerodynamics and could write uh, code, C++ code, to basically make the airplanes fly the way they would in, in real life. So it was like, okay, still aviation related, but I get to stay home uh, and develop a relationship with, with my wife, Rochelle. So that was the choice. Um, I ended up uh, just really enjoying that. It was published on three flight sim titles. We opened up a couple flight sim facilities. If anybody's ever been in Southern California in the uh, early to mid nineties, you probably remember a place called fighter town, <laughs> not the one in Miramar that, you know, top gun was shot at, but uh, it was a location-based facility. You could come in with 11 of your friends, hop in different cockpits and fly in a virtual flight sim networked environment. So it was, it was amazingly cool, well above ahead of its time. Um, but you know, that was that. And then, I ended up taking over a business in uh, early 2000s, which uh, was a computer vision software business. And they were focused on the entertainment market. And the business wasn't really, it was successful. They'd won an Emmy Award of all things. So technically it was incredible, but um, the market was really small. There was only so many firms in the world that actually did that 
task that needed that software. So it wasn't a good business. Um, I was asked to come look at that business and figure out what else we could fit. And we identified aerial imaging as one of the areas that the technology could be readily applied to. And we ended up building a software suite that was used for intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, not from you know exotic high-flying platforms like U2s or SR-71s or even Global Hawks, but more the smaller, lower, and increasingly unpiloted aircraft that were being deployed for this mission overseas. So we ended up uh, selling our software into the Air National Guard's Predator and Reaper program. Wow. Um, and that led to an interest from Boeing. Uh, we got integrated into their RQ-21A Blackjack program, which is the Marine Corps' uh, tactical UAV. And, um, and then they ended up buying the business. So, you know, weird path into unmanned aviation, but that, w- that was it. And then I was in, in situ for three and a half years ultimately leading their growth initiatives as the chief growth officer. And then I, I moved up into big Boeing uh, in their future mobility division called Boeing Next, where we were, we were really trying to understand and separate reality from hype um, by basically forcing ourselves to go build these things. So we built things anywhere from small drones all the way up to um, a, this amazing vehicle, uh, well, a two-passenger air taxi that we built under Aurora Flight Sciences that was called Pegasus. And then we also built this vehicle that was a 12-rotor, electrically driven, 1,500-pound gross takeoff weight Gosh. aircraft. Wow. And it was meant to be a heavy lift, like, you know, a, a unpiloted heavy lift vehicle. Well, what it ended up being, which is really cool, um, was the baseline for an X-Wing fighter. What? specifically two of them that flew over Walt Disney World when they opened the Rise of the Resistance ride in late 2019. That was So if you, if you search YouTube and you search X-Wings over Disney World, you will see uh, those aircraft. It was insane. It was really, really fun. So being a Star Wars nerd, that is amazing because right. I have seen that video and it's oh, incredible yeah. to know that, that you helped put that together. Holy cow. Indeed. Indeed. And uh, it was really cool. It was it was a landmark thing with interaction with the regulator and understanding, oh, my gosh, what are these things? Um, you know, they were remotely piloted. We were flying two at once from a single operator's workstation because it was choreographed with lights and music and all of that. So it was it was really for Boeing. Yeah, cool. It was Star Wars and Disney. But really what it was, it was uh, it was a leader project into the regulatory environment around these types of operations, these types of aircraft. So a lot of lessons learned, a lot of relationships built with the regulator. The regulator learned a lot about how this stuff can start to work. And that was really kind of a path that led me into this intersection between uncrewed aircraft um, traditional aviation and new and existing regulations. So um, I was recruited to come take over business Iris Automation, uh, and what we do is we build we build computer vision technologies to help uh, piloted or unpiloted aircraft see and avoid other aircraft. Like you know the thing that scares most of us when we go right. flying because we know we're not great at this job. Um, you know, as is evidenced by the fact that there's still 15 to 25 mid-air collision in America every year on average. And yep. we all know most of them are fatal. So it's, it's really, it's not a great solution. Um, the truth is we stay apart mostly through strategic mitigations. 
airspace, cruising altitudes, transponders, ADSB, you know, just careful flight planning. That's how we really avoid collisions. Our eyes in the cockpit, A, are disadvantaged because we're surrounded by structure. B, we only have so much cognitive capacity to actually do all of the things that we have to do, especially as single pilot helicopter or GA oppers. Um, and then, and then finally, gosh, our vision is really only good enough to see traffic within about a five degree cone. Everything outside of there, we detect shape, color, and motion. And any instructor that's on the podcast knows the airplane that's going to hit you, how much relative motion does it have? That, right? Like mm -hmm. it's the worst case. So, uh, so we focus, forgive the pun, on um, building a capability to help us do this better and to make flying safer. And in the process, what we hope to enable is the safe integration of uncrewed aircraft with, uh, with all of us traditional aviators that are enjoying the national airspace. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Um, one of the things that really hit home for me was years ago, I was actually at uh, an in-person flight instructor refresher clinic. Remember those um, for flight instructors <laughs> out there? You know, remember when we used to actually get together and have, and, to go. And yeah. have a weekend course for this? Um, but, uh, you know, we used to host one here at NAFI headquarters. Can you even still do that? I know they're still, still out there post pandemic. I know okay. they're still out there, but they're just not what they, what they were before. Yeah. Um, you know, human contact, it's frightening. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, you know, I remember this video that uh, one of the, the FERC operators would use. And it was basically a simulation video of you're about to have a, have a head-on collision. And you're, you, you, it sort of circles a little speck way off in the distance. And it gives you this time lapse of like, this is real time of how it's going to happen. Um, and it's like that it goes from a spec to uh oh it's mm -hmm. too late um and and so to your point of this is the airplanes are big right like you, how many times has a controller said hey there's a uh 737 at your one o'clock you know at you know a thousand feet above and you're like i, uh, I can't find it it's white right because they all are white i can't mm -hmm. find it so the idea of being able to spot a drone that, you know, even in, in the more sort of commercial realm where they're maybe three feet long, how am I going to do that? So yeah, to know that there's exactly. a guy out you're, there. You're disadvantaged to do that. Yeah. Right. And, and for a bunch of different reasons, one, like you just hit, hit on the absolute size of the vehicle. These are small. And we all know small things when you're moving fast in a big sky are really hard to see. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is they are typically operating in altitude below most uh, piloted aviation, with the exception of, you know, helicopter ops and maybe some low altitude crop duster and maybe some training. Right. But for the most part, most of the drone applications are, are below 500 feet GL. So combine that with the fact that now we have to somehow see a smaller target with ground clutter as the background. Mm -hmm. Do you remember, do you remember the old Southwest um, livery that had brown top of the airplane? Yeah. The orange on the bottom and had brown on the top. Yeah. You could not see that airplane if you were above it in altitude in the Southwest, ironically, because the entire Southwest is brown. So, yeah. you know, fortunately now the tops of them are blue and the bottoms are orange and brown, which is very nice contrast and very easy to see Southwest these days. But um, 
Yeah. So, you know, all these disadvantages really make it hard for the piloted aviation community to see and avoid the unpiloted aircraft. So our view, um, again, look at the punnies just happening all the time, um, (laughs) is because the drones are typically below where the piloted aircraft are, we're more advantaged to see the piloted aircraft because we more often have sky as background, one. Two, the GA aircraft or helicopter is larger in size because it has to carry people. Um, And those things combine to give us an advantage to be able to use commercial off-the-shelf camera technology. We don't build the cameras. We don't build the processors. We use NVIDIA processors and off-the-shelf cameras. But to write software algorithms using computer vision and machine learning that allow our technology to detect something that's moving in the space differently than you are and differently than the earth. Um, Out of that candidate list, we then use our machine learning classifiers that we train with tens of thousands of hours of actual flight footage. And we classify the type, small plane, small helicopter, hot air balloon, hang glider. Once we have a classification, now we have knowledge of its real world size and its, its dynamics, right? What can it do physically? Uh, in terms of motion prediction and things like that. We combine all that together on board, real time, running at 10 frames per second to feed information either to a human pilot or to an autopilot as to when there's a collision threat. So, um, and it can see 360 degrees around the airplane. It's mounted on the outside. So there's no structure in the way. It has nothing to do. (laughs) It's uniform resolution across the entire field of regard which means that little area that we see within five degrees of our field of view, our system sees 360 degrees. So, you know, we're very bullish and very confident that this is going to improve flight safety uh, in addition to the economic benefits of now allowing the airspace to be utilized more efficiently by both crewed and uncrewed uh, air vehicles. So first and foremost, that makes me feel comforted, right? Um, you know, knowing that there's uh, a, a group like yours that are trying to come up with these things that's going to keep me safe in a crewed airplane, um, you know, that that really kind of gives me the warm fuzzies, you know, because there, there does seem to be a little bit of a friction between communities um, because there's a new guy in town, right? You know, and the, and the, the old guys are going, well, what are we going to do? Um, and as NAFI, we want to try to kind of bring these groups together and understand that we're all working towards a a common goal and, and knowing that um, these kinds of things are on the cusp of being a a regularly implemented piece of technology. I mean, that's, that's amazing to me. Um, Yeah. Well, I I think you hit the nail on the head because when you think about like disruption, right? Like that's the Silicon Valley buzzword, right? Um, When it comes to safety oriented industries, disruption sounds scary. And, uh, and rightfully so, right? Like our safety record in aviation is what it is because of a hundreds of learning, right? It, consistency and rigor of approach, right? That's what's led to the safety system we have. So when we hear things like disruption, it makes us nervous. Like, wait a minute, you're, you're gonna come in and try something brand new? Like, hold on, there's lives at stake. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what that, and that's a healthy, I think, skepticism right? Like I I tend to bias on that side a little bit, but at the same time, what we run the risk of is not finding advantages to help the safety record 
through new technologies. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's about building that bridge, right? It's about helping these two worlds understand each other. The We like to call the new people the new entrants. So that's kind of the, the politically correct term. Um, you know, they're coming at this with tons of energy and innovation, and it's great. But a lot of times they have zero aviation experience. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, you know, aviation has been a long time and we've learned lessons the hard way mm. that uh, are immutable. So, you know, you have to understand that coming in. So someone like me coming into this space and Silicon Valley and the investor community, I, I try to help educate people on why certain things are the way they are. And once you do, these are intelligent people. They go, oh, okay, got it. So it's really about education on that side. Same thing on the traditional aviation side. AI, <laughs> like, oh, I never want autonomous planes. Like, stop. Like, we don't need autonomy. The airplane doesn't need to be smart. It needs to be automatic, right? There's a difference between those two things, right? And that, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know about you, John, but, you know, I fly a Bonanza um, and I love it. Like, we've, we've got the cool Garmin stack in there. We actually just got a 750 put in, which is just like, golly, that thing is amazing. Like, touching screens is really cool. Like, oh, yeah. But, um, you know, the airplane honestly flies itself better than I can hand fly it. I hate that because I love hand flying. But at the same time, when I'm, when I'm really under pressure to execute an approach precisely with my family in the back, guess what? Like, I'll let the airplane fly because then it frees me up cognitively to watch what's happening. My situational awareness is higher. My communications are better. Like, it's a good thing to have automation help. Mm-hmm. the human operator, right? But we don't need to be autonomous, right? I don't need to let the airplane do everything. I'm still in charge. Right. And honestly, I think that's that's the level aviation needs to get to to enable the kind of scale that people are talking about with anything from drones to air taxis to single pilot operations to simplified pilot operations. It's about smart use of automation. We don't need to have Cyberdyne systems model T101 learning computers in our cockpits like that's not where we're headed we don't need to go there um you know we can build an automated system someday that allows you and i to get in cockpit as a passenger because by that time we'll probably have lost our licenses and medicals but Mm -hmm. you know and say i want to go here or or we uploaded it from our phone because our kids just showed us how to use our mobile device to do that and the airplane will take us there like that's gonna happen but it doesn't need to be autonomous, right? <laughs> like, so I, I think there's, there's a lot of um, misperception that comes out of words that we use in this space. And yeah. especially between those two communities that, ident- that you identified, which is the, the legacy traditional aviation community and the new entrants. But there's a lot of goodness. There's a lot of Venn diagram overlap here that we, we can both benefit each other. The new entrants obviously are coming in here because they're capitalists and we see opportunity. Great. Like that's the fuel for progress in our country. Um, but for the traditional aviators, man, there's a lot of really good stuff here that's going to help safety and efficiency and predictability and reliability if we just embrace some of these new methods a little bit more. So that's that's kind of what drives me passionately to do what I do every day. And frankly, the reason our company exists. Now, uh, and, and forgive me if you said this already, but I don't think you did. Um, can that technology be retrofitted onto a like a passenger airplane to help them sure. see and avoid as well? Sure. 
We, uh, we do most of our tests with our system um, strapped to both drones and uh, we have an X-Cub that we use uh, as a surrogate for GA aircraft because the X-Cub can safely fly at low altitudes anywhere from like 40 knots up to 140 knots, wow. which is really cool. Yeah. So we have the system instrumented on the aircraft. We have it on our drone aircraft. We also have a ground-based version that just looks up and monitors sky for non-cooperative aircraft. Um, and then we share that data either with autopilots or ground control stations or common operating pictures or humans. Huh. That's really cool. It is. We, we just did some flight tests with Embraer down in Brazil, as a matter of fact, um, where we put our 360 degree field of view system on a helicopter. And this was in support of their program to support EVE, which is their future eVTOL air taxi company, it just oh. went public last month. Um, so we flew up and down the coast and you can't believe the amount of helicopter traffic that happens off the coast of Brazil. And, you know, doesn't exactly seem to follow rules. <laughs> There's kind of people going everywhere. Yeah. Um, so it's like, wow, what a great test environment. Um, but there's an example. And, you know, we've talked to helicopter operators from law enforcement to first responders to fire to Customs and Border Patrol. You know, when, when helicopter operators are flying a mission, they're typically at low altitude and low energy states. Mm -hmm. um, and their attention is usually paying attention to something on the ground. You know, maybe they're a news helicopter, maybe they're a police officer in support of a of an officer, you know, on a call and they need to pay attention to that. So their division of attention and the amount of attention they have to spend looking and scanning for traffic is is lower than most of us mm -hmm. have in normal aviation operations. So they're scared to death of people flying into them, both manned and unmanned. Yeah. So oh. um, so we're seeing a lot of demand from that space. We're actually a really cool project we're doing with Becker Avionics right now. Um, Becker is kind of, they make radio heads for a lot of the helicopter fleets. And one of their head units has 3D spatial audio built in. So we feed a traffic detection to the, the head unit. And what it does is compute the spatial audio so that you as the pilot hear a traffic alert, but it's spatially oriented correctly. What? So if it's, if it's at your six o'clock, you'll hear traffic back here. Super cool, very intuitive. You don't have to look at a display you know intuitively where the traffic is and you can just make a small flight adjustment. Well, and, and, and for our, for our uh, future aviators out there, I mean, they're doing that kind of stuff with video games and, and movies. When you wear a headset, you know, they can direct the sound so you know if there's somebody sneaking up behind you and stuff. So that's going to be an intuitive exactly same thing. technology that they're already used to using. And so when they get into the professional environment, I mean, that's going to be a seamless transition. That's incredible. Exactly the same thing. Yep. Huh. That's I, I mean, so, so John, I could talk to you about this stuff all day. Um, but one of the things <laughs> I really want to hit before we run out of time um, is this uh, beyond line of sight. Uh, um, yeah. You said it was an ARC. Um, aviation yeah. Aviation Rulemaking Committee. Um, so it was initiated last June. The FAA handpicks a people that they want to participate. Um, and they pick those people because of their aviation lineage and resume, but also organizations that they work for or represent. And they, they, they have industry come together and they give them a task, which is to produce a report back to the FAA with recommendations. And those recommendations are intended to be biased. They are intended to represent industry's view of what we think the FAA should do to enable certain things. 
So, you know, you go all the way back to the 90s, you know, GPS, there was an arc that pre that preceded GPS rulemaking, right? Mm -hmm. So anytime there was new rulemaking, there's typically an arc that solicits this feedback from industry. That report then goes to the FAA, they ruminate on it, and they derive what becomes a notice of public rulemaking, which is basically the draft of the rule that they put out for public content or comment. Then the public has a certain period to comment, question, challenge. The FAA, by constitutional law, has to respond to each and every public comment or question. Huh. So depending on how engaged the public is, the FAA's job can get pretty damn big. Yeah. Um, but so it goes from ARC to NPRM to comment period and then to final uh, rulemaking. And that's when we get new rules on the books. So I was part of the BV loss beyond line of sight ARC, Aviation Rulemaking Committee. There were about 90 of us across industry. And I was originally part of it from the Iris Automation perspective and what our company does. But as I sat in the first few meetings and started to learn who the other members were and we got into conversations about existing regulations, you know, to instruct me. One, boy, even within the traditional aviation community, not all of us know the regs very well. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so it's like, okay, we kind of need to baseline here and kind of go through part by part so people understand what we're talking about. And then of course the new entrant community, which you don't expect to know much about the broader parts of the FARs, um, you know, bringing them up to speed with the ones that really matter. So that was kind of, um, you know, awareness point, number one. And number two, as I looked around the roster, um, there were no flight instructors hmm. and, and there was no representation for flight instructors. And, and it just, I thought to myself, I'm like, man, like this is a thing that is going to put a lot more aircraft into low altitude airspace, controlled and uncontrolled, where a lot of GA pilots learn to fly. Um, Boy, it really seems like the instructor community should uh, should have a voice here. So I kind of, you know, without telling anybody, assumed that responsibility a little bit. Um, not necessarily representing NAFI, like not officially, but but at least offering commentary and education for this community of people that was the BV loss arc from a flight instructor's point of view. You know, it's very easy for a new entrant to say, "Oh, no one ever flies below 500 feet." I'm like, "Well, but you can." 91Y19 lets you do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and when you have an operation that has you do it, you got to be instructed in that option. So, yeah, I do spend some time down at low altitude, you know, in uncontrolled airspace in the middle of nowhere. Like this happens and it happens with more regularity than the new entrants could perceive. So now all of a sudden the thing they thought the FA was just throwing at them as like obfuscation and, you know, foot dragging wrong like no there's really people out there that are allowed legally to fly aircraft without electrical systems mm -hmm. god bless america like that is amazing <laughs> but we got to share the sky right so how can we do this right without being unfair to any community and there, there's one member of the arc a good friend of mine and he says you know you don't have a good deal until everybody's a little bit upset <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I prefer the flip side of that until everybody's a little bit happy, but um, it, it's true, right? Like this community, this new community can't expect the existing community to just 
equipped with all new stuff, you know, have to learn new airspace designations. Like that's, that's a little bit on the unfair side. Similarly, you know, the, the traditional community needs to take a look at these new entrants and, and look at what technology does allow them to do and have an open mind to how, you know, maybe the adoption of certain technologies might, might actually help everybody get a little bit better. So um, that, those are kind of my new, my two initial, you know, observations of sitting on the arc. But then, but then I thought about it. I'm like, you know what, there's gonna be more of these mm-hmm. and there's going to be more of these committees. There's gonna be more of these discussions. There are going to be more regulatory interactions where the flight instructor community needs, needs to be a aware. So, you know, my, my primary goal with this call with you is to just help our constituency understand what's going on. Yeah. I know there's some other things that are planned in NAFI to, to help our community get there better. Uh, but then also just offer and just volunteer, you know, my existing position uh, and my access to these communities as a, as a conduit for NAFI. Mm-hmm. So that uh, as NAFI does take official positions on things, I can communicate that. Uh, and I can communicate it from a position of trust in these communities because I've been in them. I'm a known quantity. Uh, and obviously, I've got the, the credentials via remote FERCs to stay current. You know. There you go. Yeah. So um, I, I believe you said that the this particular ARC has completed whatever it is that they were doing. Was there something that came out of that or like what was, was the final position? It was a massive report that had something like 27 uh, recommendations in it with all the justification and deliberation and support data that you could imagine. So uh, it, it is a massive piece of work. It's actually quite an impressive piece of work considering none of us did this full time. Right. Well, I should say this was our second full-time job, um, <laughs> right. you know, and, but the level of effort that everybody put into it was really amazing. You go into these things and you think, okay, here we go. Yeah. So the boondoggle, everybody dials in, there's, you know, X number of people on the call. There'd be one or two people pushing their agenda, but um, everybody really leaned into this one, which, which kind of indicates the level of demand there is for these new capabilities. Um, and there was, it was good work done. There was a lot of really good, transparent, authentic conversations. We're allowed to disagree. As a matter of fact, there's a couple of recommendations that I disagree publicly with that, that's on record. Um, AOPA disagreed with a handful of the recommendations. But on the other side, there's a bunch of really good recommendations, specifically around, say, aircraft certification. Um, you know, if, if a battery is the fuel source, should changing a battery really require an A and P, hmm. right? Like things like that, you know, like, no, like I can go fuel my Bonanza up self-serve at the pump, which is probably infinitely more dangerous than, you know, popping out a battery and putting it in. So there's a lot of stuff in there around aircraft certification, pilot certification, concepts of operation. There is a section on right-of-way rules, which is the one that obviously I'm most interested in. The, the general community of new entrants is certainly pushing for drones below a certain altitude to basically not have a requirement to see and avoid. I vehemently disagree. Um, I think everybody that uses the airspace shares this responsibility to avoid collisions. So we have to find a path to make that possible uh, for both communities. But um, the report's public. Uh, if you Google search BV loss ARC report, you'll probably find it. You know, give yourself about a month's supply of coffee and a few weeks to digest it because it is dense, um, you know, but uh, 
it gives an indication of where some of these things are headed. So I, I would recommend that, you know, this listenership, is that a word when you're on podcasts? Yeah, I'd say so. We'll, Let's we'll do call it. it that. Let's coin it. Well, say uh, audience. I can be safe by saying audience. Um, go, go look at it. And even if you just skim the, the summary of recommendations or the executive summary, I think it's good for the flight instructor community to be aware of um, a what's happening and secondarily how fast it's moving. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of momentum behind unpiloted aviation and there's a lot of capital behind it. Yeah. Um, I think it can be directed the right direction, but the right voices have to be in this and, and our community has to, has to have a voice here. Yeah. And, and first and foremost, as a, as a rep of NAFI, I'd like to publicly say thank you for the, uh, for the efforts of, of representing the, the flight instructors, you know, and one of the things that I, I really enjoy about uh, working for NAFI and, and I was a NAFI member before I started working here. Um, so just understanding the community that we live in is, is our members care about stuff, right? Like oh, yeah. it, there's, it, I have always said that that NAFI is uh, sort of the 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 empty jug, and we fill it with with the members. You know, we're not here to necessarily um, you know take the credit for the things that you do and and our other amazing members. Um, but what we are here to do is promote the efforts and and the blood, sweat, and tears that that you all put into these things. So it's it's you know really important to us to be able to share with the community. Um, that, that you're putting hard work into this. Um, and uh, we really appreciate that you reached out to uh, our board chair, Karen Kalashak, um, and, and brought her into the conversation. And of course, you know, you said yes, if, originally it was sort of an unofficial uh, representation, but uh, I think we've gotten past that now. You know, it's, it's, it's cool to be able to say that, uh, that uh, you're the designated rep, uh, NAFI rep for, for this type of conversation. Um, and there will be more, like you said, I mean, we, we have a sort of a drone task force. We haven't really called it that, but I'm going to coin that right now. Um, you know, drone task force of, of, uh, uh, NAFI members and instructors who are trying to, like we said, bridge the gap between the communities and figure out, you know, a, a teacher's a teacher. It doesn't matter yep. whether you're teaching a hot air yep. balloon, a Cessna 172, uh, a, a drone or a helicopter, you know, a lot of the instructional techniques are going to be the same. And I think our uh, end goal is also the same. And that's, we want people to be able to operate safely in the environment of which they operate. And, and that is something yep. that we share um, both in Indeed. sort of the ideals, but also in the physical environment, we operate in the same ones. Um, so it's in Indeed. our, it's in our, our best interests for all the groups to be able to do this together. Um, and so once again, I, I think that your efforts are, are, um, are great and, and we really appreciate the, the idea the, it's adding to safety. Yeah, my pleasure. And you know, like we shouldn't leave off that this new community is going to present tremendous opportunities for flight instructors in terms of career paths. Mm -hmm. They might not be the one that's in everybody's heads right now towards the left or right seat of a bigger airplane that goes faster. But, um, you know, these new organizations, they need you know, aviation experience, they need expertise and they need, you, you kind of alluded to fundamentals of instruction. Flight instructor community has all of those things and can really uh, bring some leadership to these companies um, when the time is right, especially in the air taxi space. There's gonna be a lot of training required in that space. And guess what? Instructors know a thing or two about putting together training syllabus, right? So it's a good thing. 
if uh, John, if somebody wanted to learn more about uh, Iris Automation, where would they go? Yeah, uh, www.irisonboard, all one word, dot com. Check out Iris Automation. Uh, it sounds like they're doing some really cool stuff. Um, and uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do. And Drone Safety Day is coming up on June 18th. Naffy's going to have some uh, some special things coming out for that. Uh, and we've got a special announcement that will be made on that day for uh, the drone community. Um, but uh, again, thank you very much, John, for joining us tonight. John, my pleasure. Thanks. 